Okay, questions, thoughts, or anything? I know, right, Al? Move to the stamps. Um, uh, so, any thoughts or anything? Anything at all? Indeed. No, John, for those of you listening at home, Al talked about how blessed he's been reading John this Christmas season. Yeah, John is some of the simplest language, and yet the depth of the stuff he covers is profound, profound. Um, amen. I'll start, since no one's raising tons of questions, let me clarify something I said, which may have turned your head. You heard me refer to Jesus as part of the creation. Let me tell you what I mean, what I don't mean by that. Jesus is not merely creature. You and I are merely creatures. Creature fully sums up who and what we are. We are created beings. Full stop. There you go. To the extent that Jesus' body is Jesus, and my body is me, one of the common misnotions Christians have is that the body is just my earth suit. No, Paul insists the Lord is for the body. Your body is getting raised. You are a composite being. You are a flesh spirit being, and your body is going to be transformed, and you will be rejoined with it um, for all of eternity. Your body is you. It's not the fullness of you, but it is you. This is Jeremy. Jesus' body, if he's human, is Jesus. Jesus' body is absolutely part of the creation. Um, it's not pre-existent. So Jesus is more than creature. But that's, I think, the basis of things like Colossians. He is the firstborn of the creation. Which means of the subset of things called creation, he's the firstborn of that subset. Uh, firstborn of all creation. So the error would be if we say Jesus is only creature, like say the Mormons, Jesus is a fully created being, then I think we run into heresy quickly. Jesus is both the eternal pre-existent God, he has always been, in the beginning he was being, and yet at, cre- at the incarnation, Jesus takes upon himself flesh, and to that degree that he is human, he is creature now. Does that distinction make sense? It's complicated. Um, and you got to be careful how you say it, or you end up being a heretic. But uh, it's it's profound. We don't want to minimize. He really enters into our our mode of being. He really enters into the creation. Any any thoughts or confusion on that point? Okay. Thought that'd be a bit more. Thought that might be a bit more controversial. But okay. Hmm. Well, John in particular, before Abraham was, I am. It's remarkable, remarkable um, claim to deity. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Other thoughts? Mum, you going to say something? You had a small, quiet group. Anna, you grab a mic. Grab a mic, Anna. Can I ask you and Sarah to pass the mics around? Otherwise, Mark Sullivan's going to get on me, Al. Mark is one of those people who repeatedly tells me he's thankful that the mics get passed out. So, Anna, were you going to say something? Yes. 
Oh, I thought you raised your hand. You're just volunteering to do the mics. Sorry. Okay, this is getting excellent. Okay, anyone have anything they want to say or add, or I can just do the sermon part too. Normally we have questions, but... Oh, Doug. This may not necessarily be related to the sermon necessarily, but you brought up... Well, it is somewhat because you, you talk about both created and spirit. So <clears throat> I'm troubled with the increasing use of cremation. Mm. Uh, I wonder if you could expand a bit on the consequences and the ramifications of that versus traditional bur burial. Okay. Excellent and interesting question. Um, so I want to start by saying I think I understand and I think I agree with your concerns. I, personally, I want to fall, sh I don't know if you do, I don't want to make a law that Christians shouldn't get cremated. However, that said, the, the emphasis we get in Scripture is this hope in the, in the, uh, hope in the resurrection. So if you turn to, turn to Hebrews 11, you think of all the things in Joseph's life that could be marked about as faithful or evidences of faith, and I bet you're not going to guess which element in Joseph's life the author of Hebrews is going to point to for faith. Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. Joseph, um, where is he? Abraham, Noah, there he is, 22. Hebrews eleven twenty-two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So the Jews have a two-step burial process. They would take the body put it somewhere dry and arid, and let the flesh decompose. That's the, that's the significance of Jesus being laid in a tomb that had never been used, because they'd reuse them. So you'd put the body in the tomb, you'd seal it, and over the course of a year or two, the, the body would decompose, you'd be left with a bones. And then you'd take those bones, and you'd put them in a box called an ossuary, and then you'd bury the box. And Joseph tells his, um, as he's dying, as he's near the end of his life, you make sure when you leave Egypt, and the God will lead you up from here. You take my bones, and you bury them in that promised land. And what's the whole point? In the resurrection, Joseph wants his first step to be in the promised land. So that this Jewish understanding of burial was always looking forward to the resurrection. And it was in contrast to um, burning, and the burning of bodies and burning of bones, which was a sign of destruction or being cut off. So symbolically, when Jericho is destroyed, everything is burnt, everything is cut off um, in contrast. So those are the symbolisms at play. Now, I don't for a second think that most people who are doing cremation are aware of that or even thinking of that. But, and, and certainly, people whose bodies have been burned will still have a resurrected body. It's not going to thwart God's purposes. People who... You know, if there are Christians in Hiroshima who are disintegrated by the atomic blast, they will be resurrected. However, um, thinking through the implications and what types of statements and what types of pictures are at work in the way we deal with the dead body, evidences our hope. It's at the very least, it's a, it's a way for us to, um, to make clear what our hope is in. And so I don't want to make a law, but yeah, I get, I get your point um, that... We, I don't think generally enough thought is given to these things. Now, if somebody wants to think through it and say, hey, because it's cheaper, because whatever, 
I'm not trying to deny, okay, fine. But it definitely comes in from outside of the church, that type of approach to things definitely comes in from the outside. So is there more you wanted to say than that, or is that it? Well, it's, it's, it probably is symptomatic of the fact that we really do downplay our bodies. I mean, I hear that all the time. The, this is just my body's my throwaway earth suit. Like, that's flat-out Gnosticism, which is the earliest error in the early church. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Um, Paul refutes this in 1 Corinthians 6. So, so Plato taught and Platonic dualism... And it was big then, and it's making a comeback now. Plato taught that there was the, the noumenal world and the phenomenal, phenomenal world. So pneuma is spirit. There's the spirit where you've heard of like Plato's cave, that whole thing. Anyway, so in Plato's thinking, there's the world of ideas and thought and, and the, the spiritual world. And it's perfect and it's uncorrupted. And then the physical world is kind of like the shadow on a wall. It, it, it sort of gets the point across, but it, 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 it's the corrupted, broken version of the thing. And a lot of that thinking went into the Greeks and a lot of the early church. And so because of that sort of thought, which basically boils down to physical is bad, spiritual is good. Physical is corrupt and inherently inferior. Spiritual is better and perfect. You end up with the, the denial of the humanity of Christ, which First John has to deal with. What we've seen with our eyes, touched with our hands, heard with our ears, this we can... We, we, relate to concerning the word of God, anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. There's evidence in First John that they're pushing back against that. But likewise, the same thinking of my body is bad is what justified some people at Corinth to go visit prostitutes. And you might think, how on earth did that work? Logic was something like this. I'm spiritual, but I got this weak body. And this stupid, weak body of mine has these appetites. And sometimes it wants a cheeseburger, and I give it a cheeseburger. And sometimes it wants a glass of water, and I give it a glass of water. And sometimes it wants a prostitute, and I give it that. What do you do? One of these days, I'll be free from my fallen body, and we'll be in heaven, and everything will be great. But until then, what do you do? And Paul pushes back against this in 1 Corinthians 6. So, um, so starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Now, this is the slogan he's quoting of the Corinthians. This is why the ESV puts it in quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. Then Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. So he's right. You're right so far. That there's a relationship between food and the stomach. Your stomach has hunger. You eat food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Even though we will eat in the resurrection, we will not eat because we're growing hungry and growing faint, and we will die if we don't eat. Whatever eating takes place in the new heavens and the new earth will not be to stop us from slowly growing weak and dying. That relationship will be done away with. So food is for the stomach, stomach for food. God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God's a fan of your body. He made it. It's not a throwaway husk. It's not some, uh, it's a shame I have this body or this desire. That's not the relationship. And Paul's going to insist God's going to raise your body. The Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord. The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
So Paul's going to argue what you do with your body actually matters because God made your body and God's a fan of your body. God has plans for your body. Your bodies are now members of Christ. And so what you do with your body matters. It's not an incidental matter like what do you choose to eat for lunch? Um, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from immorality. And he goes on. So evidenced even there at its earliest forms are people who are, because they're overemphasizing the spiritual against the body, are basically saying, well, you know, what are you going to do? Your body's got these desires. You know, it's just, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but what do you do? And Paul's pushing back hard. The Lord is a fan of your body. He made your body. He's going to resurrect your body, and your body is for the Lord. So stop treating it as though it's unimportant what you do with your body. So in the first century, there's this downplay of the physical. And today, it's still alive and well with people. Um, the, same, the same thing, this, this notion of enfleshment or embodiment. Um, if you die before the Lord's return, your, your soul will be separated from your body for a time, but in, Paul will come back to this in 1 Corinthians 15, if you turn there, where he probably does the most extended teaching on the resurrection. Your current body, even though it will be changed, there is continuity between your resurrected body and your body you have now. Um, so let's go to 35, 1 Corinthians 15, 35. Some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. Each kind of seed, its own body. So he's going to insist on the one hand, there is massive discontinuity between your current body and your resurrected body. There'll be a massive difference. And yet, there is still profound continuity. It's not a completely separate thing. So there's this change, this transformation that takes place, but it's still rooted in your body you have now. Both are present. So um, 37, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Verse 38, but God gives it the body as he has chosen, to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another of the moon, and another of glory of stars, and stars differ from glory to star and glory. So your resurrected body will be a more glorious body. It will be different. 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So he uses the imagery of seed. The, the grown tree is very different from the seed, yet the grown tree absolutely comes from the seed. And so the seed is not unimportant. And that's the, the, the imagery he uses to describe the relationship between our current bodies and the resurrection. Um, and so that is important to hold in mind, that the duality of our nature. We are spirit, flesh beings. We are not just spirits. Um, yep. Thoughts on that? Give my mother a microphone, please. No, 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 no. The, the, the five listeners want to know. Verse 44. Please expound. Please expound verse 44. Um, 
It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We don't have a ton of information on this. What we do know is that when he appears, we'll be like him. That Christ is the protocos, the prototype. His resurrected body is the first of resurrected humanity. And our resurrected bodies will be similar to his which means things like Jesus appears in rooms, apparently either walking through walls or teleporting. People guess, will we be able to do the same? Possibly. Um, Jesus, Jesus, so the best I can give you is this. Our resurrected body will be like the Lord's resurrected body, and then you gotta go study the Gospels to figure out what you can learn about the Lord's resurrected body. Um, we won't be given in marriage in heaven. Marriage will not be taking place there, so that's, that's a difference. Um, we won't be eating to survive there. Yet, in Revelation 21, there's the tree of life, which the fruit is in its season, which are distributed to the nations. I mean, there, there's, a lo- there's a lot I don't know about the resurrection, Mother. Any, anything more? Or? No. Okay. She isn't happy that I gave her the mic. Okay, any, anything else? We can just sing some Christmas carols or something. Um. Oh, Sarah's got a question. Ah. Okay, uh, going back to the sermon, um, I'm still a little bit confused how uh, Jesus is, we can see God's glory through Jesus mm. when it says no one has ever seen God. Sure. Let's I know to, you explained it, but I'm still confused. Yeah, let's go to John 1. Let's go to John 1. Um, so, the, the idea is, is, let's see if I can make a, a good analogy here. Because you're dealing with a holy God who is spirit and sinful man, how on earth can sinful man approach holy God and not be utterly consumed and destroyed? After all, our God is a consuming fire. And the answer is that by coming in man, in man, in, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, a literal reading in Hebrews 1, and long ago and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers to the prophets, but in these last days, and most of our translations, what the ESV say? The ESV says, um, he has spoken to us by his Son, it's enhuias, in son. It's just that the language God spoke is son. Like what language you speak? I speak son. Jesus is the revelation. And so here is the only fitting revelation of God whereby we can draw near and not be destroyed. Any other avenue of approach would consume us if we were to draw near to God. But now there's a point of contact. Jesus is man and we are man. Now there's a point of continuity and similarity, we can draw near to God in Christ and not be destroyed. The other piece of that is Jesus taking the wrath of God upon himself removes that. So those are sort of the two pieces for how we can draw near to God. The incarnation accomplishes one, the cross accomplishes the other. First, we need a point of contact. How can the infinite draw near to the finite? Well, Jesus takes creation, he becomes part of the creation in part, and then he deals with the wrath. Those are the two dilemmas that get in the way. And so, because God has imaged himself in Jesus, God has revealed himself in Jesus, and we are, he is man and we are man, we're able to, I'm lacking a better, better term for this, um, 
Here, here is a revelation that we can access without being destroyed, if that makes any sense. Something like that. I mean, it's a profound mystery, so I don't, like, I don't have my chart that I can work it out for you. But what, all that John tells us here, and the rest of John's gospel, because most of the themes in John's gospel are in his prologue. So what he, what he sets up here is simply understand that what Moses couldn't see before, we can now see. And he's going to start showing it to us. So like the first miracle, his, this Jesus, miracle Jesus did and revealed his glory. So the person who's been reading through John's going to say, oh, apparently there's glory at work here. And then you start and ask, okay, what glory is revealed in the wedding at Cana's miracle? But go to John 12. John 12 makes another radical statement about the deity of Christ and his glory. In John 12, um, there it is, starting in um, verse 35. And all those themes of light that started in the prologue, he was, in him was life, and the light was the light of men, the true light was coming into the world that enlightens everyone. Okay, verse 35 of chapter 12. So Jesus says, and the light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Um, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So in John's gospel, this is the turning point. Jesus' public ministry is done. And what we're about to get is his private ministry. In John's gospel, you've got his public ministry, his private ministry, and his passion. His ministry to the people of Israel, his ministry in one night to his disciples, and then his cross work. And this is the transition to his cross work. So starting in 13, Jesus is in the upper room of the disciples. So we're just closing Jesus' public ministry. He hides himself. And then we get this quotation from Isaiah. Though he had, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He just quoted Isaiah 6. Turn, turn to Isaiah 6. Because John just says... Right there, if I'm not mistaken, that whatever Isaiah was seeing in, in Isaiah 6 was Jesus and his glory. And turn to Isaiah 6. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for and I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us and then I said here I am send me and he said go and say to this people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull their ears heavy blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed that's what John just quoted Go back to John. 
And read 39 and 40 again, and 41. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who, which member of the Trinity does Isaiah see when he sees the Lord in his temple and the train of his robe filling it and the glory and the angel? He's seeing Jesus. There's a radical claim of the deity of Christ in John's gospel. When John identifies the vision of God in his throne room in Isaiah 6 is Jesus. And so those are, those are pictures of glory. Yet what John is going to show us is the glory that we see in the sun is less of a shining light glory and more of revealing of character. The words Jesus speaks are the words the Father gave him to speak. The compassion Jesus exercises is the compassion. We're seeing the very heart of God at work in Jesus, and there's a different type of glory, not the glory of a blinding spotlight, but a glory of something beautiful. I mean, this is, I think, part of why for 2,000 years, I mean, all we've got are four narrative accounts of what Jesus did. And then we got about a dozen or two dozen short letters just telling us the implications of that. and millions upon millions upon millions of human beings have been taken captive by the beauty and the glory of this Jesus described in four gospel accounts and a couple letters. Because there's glory at work here. There's something beautiful. There's something, even the unbelievers look at Jesus' ethic and his teaching, oh, this is good. Like there's, there's an inherent glory in what Jesus does that is captivating and has been captivating for over 2,000 years to people. It's not the glory that makes your face glow in the dark. And yet, I think what John's saying is it is a much fuller picture of the glory of God than anything a shining face and you know, bright light can give you. And we need to see it with eyes of faith. But I, I think John's insisting that that's what we're seeing in the gospel. So he tells us the first miracle at Cana, Jesus revealed his glory. You're supposed to see glory, something glorious at work in that miracle. And you could look to, okay, what is glorious about it? Well, we see Jesus exercising power over creation. We see Jesus um, showing compassion. He's at a wedding. And they ran out of wine. Jesus wants them to keep celebrating, so he makes wine. We see a subtler thing where Jesus takes vats of water set aside for purification under the law of Moses because the Messianic age is described as an age of wedding, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the, the hills dripping with, with um, running with new wine. And so Jesus takes jars set aside for ritual purification turns them into... Um, wine for a wedding. There's, there's a little something at play there as well. And all of that is supposed to be glory that his disciples saw and believed. And so we keep going on and we see him in John 4 sit down with a woman who is the outsider of outsiders. So the Jews, we know, think the Samaritans are dirtbags. And here's a Samaritan woman who, because she's been um, married three times and living with her boyfriend now, comes out to get water in the heat of the day, which suggests she's an outcast. She doesn't come in the morning with the other women. She comes in the heat of the day by herself. And Jesus, rather than saying, oh, I'm going to get defiled if I talk to you, he's the, who's the, as far as we can tell in the Gospels, this woman is the first person Jesus clearly says, I'm the Messiah to. Because she says, the Messiah, we've heard the Messiah is coming. I who speak to him, he. So here's this wonderful condescension and this wonderful grace to this outcast of outcasts. And she runs and tells, and there's glory there at work. And so as we watch Jesus throughout the Gospels, we are seeing the heart of God, the words of God, the attitude of God, the interactions of God, and that is meant to fill us with joy and delight, and we're meant to see glory. Because remember, the definition of glory that I'm working with, 
Glory is that which creates joy and satisfaction in us and elicits praise. So when you see something that you enjoy, something that fills you with, with gladness, something that's beautiful, your lips praise it. So you see a good movie and you say, oh, did you see whatever? People are talking about Star I haven't seen the new Star Wars movie, but everyone I know is talking about Star Wars. And what they're talking about is glory. They saw something they delighted in and they want to speak of it. They're evangelists for Star Wars, right? You got to see it. It's amazing, right? Or if people who, who watch you know, sports and they, did you see that play last night? What are they doing? They're evangelizing. They're proselytizing. They're, I, I saw something wonderful last night. Did you see something wonderful? And that's what they're doing. Or whatever it is. We're designed that way. So we see something that's satisfying. We see something that's beautiful. We see something that gives us joy. We want to talk about it. And in many respects, talking about it is the fulfillment of the joy. I saw a movie that I liked about a month ago with my wife, and I've been bugging my buddy in New Hampshire to see it. I want to talk about it with him. And he finally saw me. I have to talk about it. And so the praise is the fulfillment of the joy. They're not, they're not at odds. So we see in the Gospels things about Jesus that fill us with joy and gladness and that we want to talk about, and we sing songs about it, and we, that, that's what we're doing because we've seen something glorious. Don't just think of glory as like the big, bright spotlight. Glory is that which fills us with awe and wonder and joy and delight and which makes us want to talk about it. And in that sense, the Gospels are just overflowing with the glory of Christ. Does that... It, 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 might, it might shift us, it might throw us for a loop because we're used to like Moses going from his face is glowing in the dark and you know, that's not happening to us. But make no mistake, we're seeing glory and for 2,000 years, Christ's church has seen an awful lot of glory in, in the gospel accounts of Jesus. Any, any, any thoughts off that? Or do you have more questions with that, Sarah? Or? Okay. It's going to be a long morning. Okay. Other thoughts, questions, complaints, Christmas anecdotes. Siobhan. Well, I was just wondering if we could go back to the resurrected body mm. and, and the natural body. Because yeah. um, on the cross, Christ poured out his blood for us. And if I understand, um, his new body was flesh and bone, but yep. not blood. And yet in our earthly bodies, blood is such an integral part of the life is in yeah. the blood, right? Yeah, Jesus, um, at, the, at the resurrect, after the resurrection, when he's by the, it's in John, um, I'm, they think he's a ghost, and he says, I'm flesh and bone. Now, we don't know he doesn't have blood, but the shift from flesh and blood to flesh and bone suggests it. It may well be the right conclusion. I, don't, I just don't want to get dogmatic on things that we're guessing at. Um, but yeah, certainly, again, in the resurrection, you're not going to be filled with a liquid that if you lose it, you die. <laughs> Like that, that, whatever goes on, it won't be that. Like, oh no, I'm dripping my life, which is what really is going on now, right? Um, the, the life is in the blood. So, but, but there's weird things, like I don't get. Like go to, go to Revelation 21, I'll show you one of them I don't get. I have no answer for this whatsoever. Um, told you about the, the tree, Revelation 21, and we get a picture of the new, the new uh, Jerusalem. Um, no, no, 22, Revelation 22, sorry. The angel showed me, this is now we're in the new heavens and the new earth. This isn't the, this isn't the kingdom. This is the, the, what we would call the entrance into the eternal state. New heavens, new earth, heavenly Jerusalem's come down. God's with his people. Verse 1, the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing with, 
flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Nations will need healing in the eternal state. Don't have an idea of what that's talking about. I just go, okay. <laughs> now, maybe someone else has studied this. They do. But there's, I, I read that and I go, that's odd. Um, and uh, so, I, I, so part, part, part of it, Siobhan, is I want to be careful speculating too much, especially when the information I do have, I don't fully get. Like, I'm sure this is wise and makes sense and is good. I don't want to make it sound like I think this is in any way foolish. In my finitude and in my ignorance, I look at that and go, I wouldn't have expected that. I wouldn't have thought nations needed healing in the new heavens and new earth. But here it is. So I just don't want to go much beyond what's written just because I don't get it very well. So back to your point about blood. Yeah, there seems to be a distinction. There's, there's a radical difference. I mean, we, we don't know for certain, but Jesus seems to be able to hide who he is when he wants to. He, in a way that he never did prior to the resurrection. So he's walking with people who knew him and they don't recognize him and then suddenly they do. Is that a characteristic of the resurrected body? Is Jesus walking through walls or teleporting? Is that a resurrected body character? It might be. Is that something peculiar to him? I don't know. We'll be like him when we're raised, but I, I can't say with any um, certainty what exact points one-to-one -one will be the same. Um, but I, I can't wait to find out. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, sorry, I don't have a, a more satisfying answer than that. Anything else? Anything else? I may just do the unthinkable and let you guys out early on Christmas Eve day. Just as long as you don't take your kids out of Sunday school early. That'll throw off the, the Sunday school workers. But as long as you don't take your kids out early, we can close in a word of prayer and, and uh, you guys go have a wonderful Christmas. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the snow in this day. We thank you for being able to gather as your people. And Lord, help us now go and, and cherish Christ in our hearts and um, worship in spirit and in truth. Guard us from the consumerism. Guard us from the anxiety and the getting caught up in the tyranny of the urgent. And help us to offer up a sacrifice of praise that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.